This episode is brought to you by Smart Food Popcorn. Some decisions aren't the best, like skipping ahead in your favorite podcast. Think of all the banter you'll miss, the lore in the making. Luckily, Smart Food Popcorn is a no-brainer. Deliciously tasty and available in a variety of fun flavors. It's a smart decision every time. Smart Food. Add smart. To learn more, visit smartfood.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, Hello everyone, I'm Alan Davis, you are listening to Seven Pillars, this is the podcast in which we find a special guest and they go through the seven most influential things in their life, cultural events uh, or films or pieces of music, books, food stuff, some of them have been things that are not just their favourite or the best they've encountered but that mean something to them, their seven pillars of wisdom and uh, this week's guest is Izzy Sooty, hello Izzy. Hello. Nice to hear from you. Thank you. Itty and I have uh, collaborated on some of the finest comedy programmes in British television history, haven't we, Izzy? Yeah, that have ever blessed people's televisions. <laughs> Actually, the truth is, we're very good at collaborating programmes that are immediately canned. <laughs> but in our view, quite wrongly, uh, Izzy and I worked together on a BBC Two show called Whites in 2010. Uh, and your comic performance as the uh, waitress was absolutely brilliant, Izzy. And then we worked in a show called Damned on Channel 4. Um, that got that, two series. That did get two series. That did. And you were, and, and again, an outstanding comic performance as a kind of, what would you call yourself, receptionist? Yes, or ditzy, ditzy. well-meaning. <laughs> <laughs> ditzy and well-meaning the kind of parts that I hope I can carry on playing into my 60s. They come, yeah. become a bit thinner on the ground once you hit 42 because people sort of <laughs> want you to be like a mum. You could be a ditzy mum. Ditzy mum, there's a, there's a market. I mean, that is a, like the title of something. Ditzy mum. Ditzy mum, is she? Ditzy mum. I've forgotten ditzy to pack that oh, have you seen that again. YouTube channel with the ditzy mum? Yeah, episode three with her child dies. <laughs> Didn't she used to play ditzy receptionist and ditzy waitresses? Yeah, she she plays ditzy mums now. But you're best known, of course, for Peep Show, uh, which ran for many, many, many series. Yeah, and actually, I don't think Dobby was ditzy. So I have got range, actually, which is good. Um... (laughs) Well, it's lovely to talk to you. Let's move on. Let's crack on. Okay. Um, We could natter all day, um, but we have got your seven pillars ahead of us. And uh, and they're all I've got them up on my uh, screen here, and they're excellent choices. But let's dive straight in with your film choice. Tell us what it is. So my film choice is Dirty Dancing, which I was extremely perturbed to learn you hadn't watched. I At hadn't least... watched until two nights ago. Okay. When, thanks to you, I sat through it. <laughs> <laughs> um. 
I really want to know what you thought of it. I call it, by the way, I call it dirty dancing as opposed to dirty dancing. But that's okay. A, that's well, that's a, part of the problem. Part of the problem you need to, yeah. yeah. Um, I can't believe you haven't seen it, but maybe we should come on to that. I'll, do you want me to say why I love it, and then I'll, I absolutely I'll... want you to say why you love it. Well, yeah, because this podcast isn't just the host going. Well, I hadn't seen that, and this is what <laughs> I thought of it. Very much the point of this. Is... <laughs> <laughs> I suggest seven things to you and you review them. Actually, that would be a good podcast. I've got one question about it before you begin. So you, you're a 42-year-old mother of two now, and yeah. you were born, therefore, in 1978, and Dirty Dancing came out in 87. Yes. So you, I'm assuming that you saw it in the subsequent years, perhaps in the 90s. Was it a teenage thing for you? Actually, I saw it when it came out at the cinema. No, <laughs> I mean, that that would have been great. Uh, no, I probably was about, I would think I was about 12 um, because I had a best friend called Joe, and we used to watch Bill and Ted's and Dirty Dancing. Um, and I remember us, I remember us practicing Dirty Dancing with like this giant teddy bear that she'd won at a fair. And once I got to sort of 13 and 14, I moved on. You know, you often have a best friend when you're 11 and then you sort of go to comprehensive school and for a few years you drift apart and then it kind of cements itself around 13 or 14. Well, I think I must have been 12 because we'd started to drift apart at 13. So I think 12 is perhaps a bit young to watch it, having having seen it again. But you, you like it was the dancing itself that attracted you to it? Or was it just the Swayze? Well, Swayze, yes. All of it. We we loved the songs. We loved. I know it sounds mad, but we sort of thought it was quite romantic. Um, but and now I don't know if it's romantic. I I was thinking about this. He changes in it. You've you you know you've studied screenwriting and you're. That's a that's a bit of a stretch. <laughs> I did a weekend course. <laughs> you are a professor of screenwriting. <laughs> now she's presented as the protagonist. I think. And um, I don't know how much she changes. I think she does grow up a bit, but it seems like he does the most changing. So I don't know. I don't, when I was younger, I sort of used to view it as a kind of fairy tale ending. And now I've grown up, I'm not sure that that's right. And I'm also not sure it's supposed to be analysed that much. Maybe it's just meant to be. Well, I find it, for people who haven't seen it, it's about a family who go to a sort of holiday retreat place, which is a grand building in the in the Catskills, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a great big hotel with a lake and lots of events organised to sort a sort of a kind of very upmarket grand Butlins really, and the parents are upstanding members of the community and they've got two daughters who are clearly actresses in their late twenties but they're playing teenagers, <laughs> and kind of down beneath the grand hotel the grand building are these slightly scuzzy chalets where all the staff live. And the staff get together and get off their faces and dance erotically, apparently every night of the week. Yeah, every night of the week. <laughs> and the head dancer, and the one who also dances in shows for the for the hotel guests, is Patrick Swayze. Yeah. And uh, his very glamorous assistant, uh, is it Cynthia Rhodes? I can't know. Yeah. And, um, and then, cut a long story short, uh, she can't do a dancing show because she needs to have a backstreet abortion. It goes a bit dark for a 12-year-old at this point. And up steps teenage guest in the most unlikely. Uh, and then there's a kind of Rocky-style dance teaching 
Yeah. Section in which yes, that's true. Actually, each time you go back to them, another bit of their clothing's fallen off. <laughs> Eventually, she's down to a bra, and he's throwing her around in a lake. <laughs> and he's got just no top on. He's got no top on for most of the film. Yeah, that's true. I watched it with my wife. It's the same age as you. And after she went a bit quiet like, halfway through, yeah. and then she said something in a kind of low. A voice that was about an octave lower than she normally uses and said, he really has got the most extraordinarily perfect back and torso. <laughs> well, there we go. I thought she'd been possessed. <laughs> Had she seen it before? She said she'd seen it many, many times. Yeah. And it was as if it was a secret, like it's a guilty pleasure or something. Yeah. That makes sense. I saw it on a hen night once in a private cinema and then we all got up and did the lift, you know, in the lake, the bit you're talking about when they... I bet no one fell over. Oh, (laughs) actually, that's another thing not to do, isn't it? (laughs) Don't do the lift on a hen night in a private cinema. Don't try the lift. Yeah, we were compiling, before we started recording this, we were compiling a list of don'ts and that's definitely a don't. Don't try and do the lift from Dirty Dancing. Yeah, maybe we should think of a don't for every seven seven pillar. That That's my don't for this one. But I I did, I, I think it's the music as well. And I've, I've, there's a documentary about it on Netflix and um, the screenwriter talks about how elements of it are based on her life. She was called Baby as a, as a young girl, which Jennifer Grey's, character is called isn't it and she used to go to the Catskills on holiday she witnessed all the staff doing this dirty dancing and she that's where her story ends so she says um but they fought to get this made um and it was very low budget and they just didn't realize what a big hit it would be I never knew that when I watched it I, I don't think you can tell I sort of love that about it that they you know they sort of that was the last studio they took it to because everywhere turned it down and they saw something in it and I I do think the story is really compelling um and that it all plot wise it all knits together really well there's something kind of old-fashioned about it isn't there so yeah yeah the story becomes that because patrick swayze comes from a poor background he hasn't got anything he desperately needs the job and if he gets into trouble so when the girl gets as they say in the film knocked up everyone's worried they're going to lose their jobs and-, and everyone thinks it's him as well don't they and it isn't yeah and he doesn't tell anyone that. no so you he's kind of He's got a moral backbone and you feel for him as he's trying to do the right thing. Yeah. But all the rich white people, they can get away with anything. So people are living in poor accommodation who have, have who have less life chances, who are always in danger of, of the wrath of the wealthy white man. That kind of feel. I think it's possible to get so distracted by his torso that you sort of forget about everything else. In life. Yeah. And now talk to me about the final scene, because there's a very, very famous uh, line that Patrick Swayze says to Jennifer Grey in, in that final scene. Yeah, is it, um, no one puts baby in the corner? I think he says, and I played it back a few times, I think he says, baby in a corner. Nobody puts, but she's sitting right in the corner of the room looking thoroughly depressed. He's been banished, you think he's lost his job, and he comes back for her. And he comes back, he's going to stick up for her, and he's going to stick up for poor people everywhere. All right, I'm Googling it now. Um, (laughs) Is it nobody puts baby in the corner or nobody puts... You wouldn't believe how many results. Why does he say nobody puts baby in the corner? What movie says nobody puts baby in the corner? When he says it in the film, his torso is perfect. His diction is poor. (laughs) Well, I mean... (laughs) 
I think the corner is a better line than a corner. I thought at first you said nobody puts a baby in the corner and then that becomes a totally different thing. Like, where's, where's the baby? She's not pregnant. Um, well, I, uh, yeah, his dick, it doesn't matter though. When your torso's that good, it just doesn't matter, does it? And then he gets up and he makes a speech for it and then he does a dance through the audience, which is, I think, either... It's very romantic. You feel you feel a little tear in your eye, but also you know you're witnessing some of the worst dancing you've ever seen in your life. Yeah, that's true. I um, <laughs> well, it also looks so choreographed. That's the thing that even at the tender age of twelve used to annoy me a bit about the last scene and why it isn't actually my favourite scene. My favourite scene is where they first meet and she goes, "I carried a watermelon." Because actually, <laughs> the last scene is I think it looks too it's like too perfect it looks choreographed and all the other his colleagues I suppose I don't know if he'd ever refer to them like that are kind of behind him aren't they doing exactly the same movements when he comes down the aisle and um yeah it's a kind of a mixture between Greece yeah and Michael Jackson's thriller video yes it is but the bits previously, it hasn't been like this. Like with Greece, you suspend your disbelief. With the songs, there are choreographed dance routines and you kind of accept that the songs are allowed to be choreographed and they're, they're there for as songs. Whereas with this, no one bursts into song and no... Do you know what I mean? There are no bits where you go, oh, they're allowed to all know this dance. It all seems to happen spontaneously. So that last bit, you go, well, they wouldn't have all known what to do. No, no, that's right. He doesn't. He's not. Re, he's not leading a dance troupe like Diversity. Or something. Well, very much, exactly. much not like Diversity. But it's yes, it's not a musical. And in fact, time of my life, the big famous song at the end isn't really from 1963, is it? Isn't it? I don't know. Well, do you know what in this documentary? It turns out some of the music is original and some of it is. We recognise some of the music, don't we, from like from that era, but some of it's original. So it could have been an original piece in the style of that. I don't know, time of my life, if it already existed or if, if um, the composer wrote it. It doesn't sound that 60s, does it? When you think of Dirty Dancing, how does this become such an important thing in your life? Well, it's interesting because I was thinking about, and I'm sure that other people that you're talking to say this, it's very hard in a way to pick something that's influenced you over something that you still love. So I wouldn't necessarily watch Dirty Dancing now if I had a chance. I don't tend to go back to things anyway. I tend to, I've got a real hunger for life, Alan, and there's so many new mm-hmm. things to discover. Like I don't tend to go back and read or watch things again. But it was such a big part of my life as a teenager. I still know most of the songs off by heart. I know lots of the dialogue off by heart. When I watch it, I feel really warm and happy and kind of safe. So the re- that's really the reason I picked it. I, I I wouldn't necessarily put it on on a Saturday night, but I guess I would watch it on my hen night because it it just feels I don't know it was just it feels like a part of me in a way. Well, that's what we're after. I do think the plot's good. Like I think it's quite easy to dismiss it as a kind of oh it's a girly film or it's the plot's absolutely watertight. It, otherwise it would just fall apart it wouldn't it would seem really thin and kind of it wouldn't hang together I think you really really believe in them as characters and well also you've got uh, the dad's the dad does he goes through a little personal journey doesn't he yeah he does he goes and saves the girl who has the backstreet abortion then he realizes he's wrong about Swayze and Swayze <clears throat> really is an absolute hero like a flawless hero figure 
He starts yeah. off at the beginning as if you think this surely this person is just a potential rapist and a wife beater vest, but actually, he's morally sound. He's physically perfect. Yeah, and all of his behaviour is done with best intention. He's a he's a true cinematic hero. That's it. Do you think you'll watch it again? Then do you think? I, I'm like you. I don't like to watch things twice, particularly <laughs> if I think they're really weird. <laughs> But I was, I, I sort of sat there really agape in disbelief for what an extraordinary, it's something old-fashioned about the way it's shot, about the morality of it, um, about rather like Greece. I mean, there is one black couple in it, but there, it's pretty much uh, all white. And it feels like a sign of film that James Dean might have made in the 50s. Yeah. But by the end, when he comes back and says, nobody puts baby in a corner, well, I feel, I feel actually moved. Patrick's really a great guy. Come on, everyone. Yes. Leave him alone. And look at his moves in those shoes. <laughs> so I fell for it in the end. Good. So thank you, Izzy Sooty, for Dirty Dancing. And let's move you along. Uh, we're going to move you along now to we ask our, our guests for a favourite uh piece of writing, maybe a book, maybe a, an author, and you've chosen a, a poem for us. Yeah, it's Les Silphides by Louis McNeese, which was published in 1939. And I first came across this when I was at drama school and we studied it. And um, I really like the simplicity of it. I don't read lots and lots of poetry. I read a bit. Um, I think I could probably be better at reading poetry. I'm reading Frank Skinner's book at the moment about how to read poetry. And I'm like, oh, you're not meant to read it really quick, like you're scanning a newspaper article, then get frustrated if you don't immediately understand it. You're supposed to laboriously go through each line. Um, but I I like, I, the reason I really love it is because it's about um, a couple, you see them at the beginning of their relationship um, and they go to watch the ballet and um, the, the person, the speaker, um, who's a man, um, well, it was from his point of view. It's not from I, it's from he, but it's from his point of view, I think. He talks about um, the ballet and how beautiful it is. And he sort of dreams of their future, I suppose, and talks about the, his relationship with the woman. And then it just talks about how every relationship ends in <laughs> kind of, I don't know, what would you say? Kind of the everyday drudgery of of kids and tradesman's bills he talks he says divided by the morning tea by the evening paper the children and the tradesman's bills and then it turns to her voice towards the end and talks about how she wonders whether it was really worth it it says waking at times of the night she found assurance due to his regular breathing but wondered whether it was really worth it and where the river had flown had flowed away and where were the white flowers and the white flowers are talked about in the ballet I don't know it really always just gets me because I think I don't know. It's like she hasn't given up, even though it's shit. I think that's the most important thing to remember with all relationships. <laughs> well, it's a, it's a very, it's a beautiful poem. I'm like you. I'm not a poetry person. And uh, I, I had to learn with poetry. As you say, you have to read it slowly. In fact, you need to best read slowly out loud. You need to take your time. Yeah. and not get through to the end as if you're reading a page of prose, and it's a very good piece of advice. But he spent uh, six verses in this poem, and the first three, really, are about that, that first date. 
and they went to the ballet and he talks about the ballet dancers. He talks about walking home and then realizing really it's as if they're falling in love there and then. And then in the, in the fourth verse, they decide they're going to get married. He talks about, we cannot continue downstream unless we are ready to enter the lock and drop and beginning of first five is so they were married to be yeah. them all together and then within four lines they've entered in some sort of drudgery <laughs> children and the morning tea and you think oh no oh no that's so the kind of overpowering memory of their when he thinks about their life together was that amazing period when they were falling in love which is crystallizing this this going to see this ballet together and how the music and the dances and them and her and everything and all the colors and the imagery and then by verse five uh, the morning tea and the evening paper and the tradesman's bill. <laughs> I know. There's not even the bit where they get to paint the house together and flick paint onto each other's noses and, you know, kind of maybe they they sense that things aren't going to ever be as exciting. No, it's straight. They drop immediately, don't they? If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Want to be more active this summer? Sierra helps you save on everything from swimsuits to stand-up paddleboards, tennis rackets to fishing tackle. And if that doesn't float your boat, we also have pool floats. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Don't you like the way it is? It's written in the 30s. Louis McNeese is a Northern Irish poet. and He was well-known in his lifetime and friends with Auden famously and so a very popular poet in his in his lifetime. Not not someone who was hidden away. Not someone who's been discovered later, like some a big name of poetry. And he, and one of the reasons for that appears to be that he did kind of have his finger on the pulse of how people felt. Yeah. And and he's really captured the kind of something about everyday life, made it memorable. And also this. It's the 30s, so he doesn't talk about, you know, the sex being repetitious or non-existent or something that might come up now. Yeah, that's that's true, yeah. The tradesman's bills. Uh, I don't know if that's a euphemism. <laughs> and then right at the end, as you say, in the last verse, it suddenly turns to the wife. Uh, waking at times in the night, she found assurance due to his regular breathing, but wondered whether it was really worth it. And, uh, and there they are together in bed, almost as if they're in a grave. You know? Yeah, I know. And do you know what? Like, I think you discover with a poem that you love, and you people have such personal connections to poetry, don't they? And I think that some people get a bit, including me, a bit kind of like, oh, God, it's a bit like wine. You just go, I don't like Chardonnay. And it's like you've dismissed the whole, like, I don't like French poetry. And it's like, no, just <laughs> you only ever read one. Like, yeah. um, I sort of feel like when you connect with a poem, like I... <laughs> like I, I have don't a... like it as a euphemism from I am ignorant of. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yes. Yes, you should replace it with that. Um... <laughs> Like each time I come back to this, I discover something new, which I think is a great thing about a poem that you personally love. Um, and I've just realised that, you know, when she says, due to his regular breathing, blah, blah, blah. I'm not sure who's to say blah, blah, blah when you're discussing a poetry, um, a poem. But anyway, um, she wondered whether it was really worth it and where the river had flowed away. Uh, for me, that almost implies that their river continued 
like it's almost like she can see a parallel relationship that was happier but she doesn't know where it's flowed to which I think is quite lovely that she's sort of going I feel like I've I've stopped or I've kind of carried on down this path which isn't isn't exciting it isn't necessarily unhappy but isn't exciting and I can see this river kind of flowing away that would have carried on on that other trajectory I think that's true I think there was also something about they don't really know how it's happened to them do they yeah you know at the beginning it says life in a day it says life in a day and that's quite a nice uh, life in a day colon he took his girl to the ballet being short-sighted himself could hardly see it it says something about him that yeah you know, perhaps he would have been, as you say, if someone had said, oh, I don't really like ballet because he's, he, I am ignorant of ballet. Yeah. He saw his sister in the Wizard of Oz ballet when, when he was six. <laughs> don't like ballet. <laughs> but despite, he, they go to it, he, he, this, the, you can kind of read into it that he probably wouldn't have gone, but he was going, he had a girl he wanted to take out. Mm. And then something happens between them and then they find themselves. There they are together. And there's no sense at the end that they're going to, she's going to get out of the bed and leave or that they should be in separate beds or this should be, it would be better if this never had happened. It's just almost as if it's saying, this is what life is, isn't it, folks? Yeah, and that is really what I love about it. It isn't dramatic. I'm eternally interested in relationships in my writing and a lot of my stand-ups about relationships, a lot of the sort of stories that I do in my shows about relationships. I, I, don't, I, I find it fascinating that what draws people together and I find it very fascinating the kind of nooks and crannies of why people stay together and sometimes things aren't brilliant and they still stay together and I find the little sadnesses exciting to explore and I think that's why I love this poem really because it no one really wants to read about completely happy people do they um no but do you think it is a poem supposedly it's a poem of disappointment and jadedness yeah, there's no slamming doors, is there? There's no, as you say, you don't get the sense that they're going to break up. You don't get the sense that even that they're necessarily unhappy. It's just that it will never be as good as it was at the beginning. And I think sometimes in, an acceptance of that is is quite lovely. I don't know. It's like, in a way, as I've now I'm 42, I go, maybe I'll never, we'll come on to my best um, event. But when I think about going to gigs and stuff, I think, I don't know if I'll ever feel that kind of buzz that I used to get from seeing a live band when I didn't have anything else to worry about. I didn't have a babysitter to go home to that I was thinking, oh, you know, are the kids all right? One of them's teething. I didn't have a job to get up for the next morning because I was at school. You know, maybe I'll never have that again. And in a way, the acceptance of that, I sort of go, oh, well, well, that's fine. I'll just knit (laughs) (laughs) rather than trying to recreate it. Do you know what I mean? Well, now, now you have streaming services. <laughs> yeah. But there is, and also I think one of the reasons why people, the relationships are strange, aren't they? And there's always somebody with a worse relationship with you. It's rather like uh, a childhood trauma or depression. You can always think, well, there's somebody worse than me, so I'll just muddle on. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, that's why people love gossip. Because, you know, it's not like a Roddy Doyle. There's that rather brilliant Roddy Doyle about the woman who walked into doors or something. Yes. So someone using some hellish thing that they can't escape. You think, well, if the worst thing is we spend less time together because of the children, and perhaps that's all right. Yeah. But you're talking really about lost youth, aren't you? That's really, how do you recover that? Yeah, I suppose I am. But in a strange way, I think the beginning of a relationship is, is similar in the sense that 
I don't know, you've got different priorities when you first meet someone, you're kind of the best version of yourself, or at least the best version that you think you can be of yourself. And then that has to disappear because you're a human being. So seven or eight years in, you will, they're going to see the kind of the harder elements of you to stomach. And that's where things get interesting, isn't it? Certainly in in art of all kinds. I think. I think also when you go into a relationship, when you meet, one of the reasons you do is because you want to be in a relationship. Yeah, exactly. And so you uh, put aside differences and focus on your yeah. commonalities, and then but it might come later in your life that you don't want to be in a relationship anymore, but you are. <laughs> <laughs> but then I think that, that that must be that you don't want to be in a relationship with them. Or do you think that people might sometimes go, actually, I'd rather be on my own. I hate this person so much. I'm never going to go out with anyone else. just want to be on my own forever. I just think you want, you know what people really want to do? Is they, they just want to laugh a lot. That is what I think. I think that's more important than anything else. When people say, oh, let's go for a drink, what they mean is let's go for a laugh. Yes, I totally agree. And, that, and if you can re- recover shared humour or give yourself the space to laugh. I mean, the other day, my wife and I, as you know, we've been together for 15 years and sometimes she has a look on her face <laughs> that I think would banish me to the nether worlds. But the other night we got some fireworks for the kids and they, I mean, I thought they were going to expire. They were so excited. And then we lit sparklers and my sparkler was so feeble and so barely alight while everyone else's were blazing. <laughs> and I looked at Katie she nearly died laughing yeah. and I thought oh I, that, I think that might be the first time she's really laughed since about March <laughs> <laughs> and it was it was really very nice to, to see and to hear yeah it is the most important thing a hundred percent more important than anything else yeah and kindness and kindness but not everyone loves laughing Ellis did a corporate gig once and um he had to sit at the table and have a meal with everyone before he went up, which was great. Um, and um, there was the boss and the boss's wife. And she said, what are you doing here? And she, he said, I'm doing the, com- I'm the comedian. I'm doing quarter of an hour in a minute. And she said, oh, I don't like humour. <laughs> <laughs> when people say that, what they mean is I'm afraid of the... If I don't understand what you're doing up there, I'm afraid of the shame and the embarrassment that will fall upon me and those around me as we don't get the joke. Yes, and maybe it's the same as when people say I don't like poetry or I don't like Chardonnay. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm ignorant of humour. <laughs> <laughs> There's that brilliant bit in Dirty Dancing where the actor whose name I can't remember, a wonderful comic actor who plays Newman in Seinfeld. Oh, yes, I know. I can't remember his name either. Yeah, I know you oh. mean. Newman. Anyway, he plays the camp comedian and he does that joke where he says, I finally met a girl who's just like my mother. She she walks like my mother. She talks like my mother. I took her home. My father can't stand her. So- yeah, that's great. <laughs> he does it obviously better than that. It's great. Oh, I laughed so much. I, I know. Something about old-fashioned jokes. That- but, but in the build-up to it as well, it feels so old-fashioned, doesn't it? You're like he's adding lots and lots of layers to this there's going to be a reveal but we're like not used to it is it is kind of old-fashioned style of joke but I love it my dad would have loved absolutely loved that joke it's a brilliant joke and there's also in his delivery everything about those kind of comedians right down to the bow tie and the blazer and the whole works tells you that it's a front it's a show it's not it's not personal there's no personal content these are not real folks 
well, that's why they used to do each other's material, isn't it? And they didn't regard it as stealing. Yes. It's like there were cover versions and they were all in a big lucky dip and then you just did whatever you wanted that night. That's right. I think it's only reasonably recently that, well, you know, not not in the last 10 years, but you know what I mean, that people are like, you've stolen my joke. Because you do still get those older comedians who go, oh, what do you mean stolen your joke? Yeah, once you've said it out loud, it's it's fair game. That yeah. was the old attitude. Certainly when I started in comedy I mean, many years ago, it was a more the kind of writer-performer vibe. People were quite sniffy about comedians who use writers, and they'd say, oh, he's he's got a brilliant act, but he uses writers. Yeah. And I remember thinking, what have you got against writers? They're trying to earn a living as well. Just because they're not so good at standing up and doing the jokes, they might be writing brilliant jokes that no one ever gets to hear because they're not allowed to sell them to a yeah. brilliant performer. This is a nonsense. But that, that's, that's how strong the feeling was that you need to do your own stuff I think that feeling's still there it is certainly was when I started and you know when it's like when people get their own show I'll still hear like oh yeah she's got her own show but but you know she's had to get writers now and it's like well yeah because she's got to produce an hour you know half an hour to an hour if you over record of new stand-up for each show yeah, and why wouldn't you get writers in? I'm, a couple of friends of mine, you know, one of my great comic heroes is Dave Allen. Uh, I mean, I'm not alone in that, obviously. But he he got back into stand-up in the early 90s, and several people that I was on the comedy circuit with were brought in to work on his show, his mm. material. And so that's for the huge honour. People are very excited. Mm. This great godfather of comedy, the greatest stand-up of, you know, my lifetime. And uh, they said... He didn't use any of their stuff, but he you could kind of recognise in his material perhaps the odd word or a line or a theme or a point of view or something that someone had brought up in a meeting, yeah. a writer's meeting that went through his process and, and he used it as fuel for his point of view and his worldview, and that was how the comedy came. Yeah. And he probably felt like he couldn't have got there, as you say, for that quantity of material by himself. Yeah, so it's not... Yeah, you don't have to necessarily use for word for word the things that writers... But they might feed... They might speed up the process of your writing by feeding you a different viewpoint. Lots of comedy, doesn't it? Lots of comedy comes to people between them. But also it comes from absorbing as wide as wide an array of all art that you can, I think. So I think even going to an art gallery of things that you think, my God, I've never seen anything like this before. I don't even know if I really like it. I think that is so much better than just sitting in front of the computer all the time. Because I think you sort of regurgitate through your own lens what you what you consume. Absolutely you do. And I think, I think, I feel like I know that if you went to an art gallery and you came back and reported to me on it, that you would make me laugh about it. And that... There'd be something there. Yeah. And then there might be just some nugget that later on becomes part of your show. You don't know where it's going to come from. And one thing I do know about comedians is they all think they're never going to think of another funny thing. So, Izzy, I'm going to move you on now. So let's talk about your favourite food, because I know this is to do with an early part of your uh, relationship, and that seems to fit quite nicely with what we were talking about with the Louis McNeese poem. Tell us about your favourite food. Um, Well, my favourite food is paella. Um, Yum. But yeah, well, you're a veggie, aren't you? I am a veggie, but I do eat seafood. Yeah, I thought you did. So you can yeah. still have it. Yeah, I can. And some of those pilas you get in Spain, you know, where you will, 
I mean, do you like a kind of neat and tidy paella or do you like to find a real half an octopus leg? <laughs> yeah, like a kind of like buried treasure. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, yes, I do. And maybe I've been having paellas that are too conventional. I've never actually made it. That's my next. I've been doing a lot more cooking in lockdown. I should. Um, but the, the way that I discovered my love for it was that we went to Alicante straight after Edinburgh one year quite near the beginning of our relationship before we had kids and stuff and um on the first night we went to this restaurant by accident just in a little square with a guy playing violin nearby and everything and we had paella and rose and then the next night we thought we may as well go back there we know that we liked it last night and then by the end of the week we were just still going back uh, to this same (laughs) table same table same rose same waiter you didn't go to any other restaurants you just headed for the same perfect place no and then we even talked about going there for lunch but we decided that would be insane because we would have had to have the same thing for lunch and it was the same the waiter started to recognize us and um yeah we're not really very adventurous so but I but I'm I don't have paella a lot because I don't think it'll live up to that paella so I think I that's I quite like to learn how to cook it because I I don't have it enough I I love it I think it's like a good risotto a good version of risotto I find risotto really boring I'd like it as a kind of tapasy thing where, but after about the sixth mouthful of risotto, I'm like, this is all it is. It's just all, every mouthful tastes the same. It's, it's easy to go wrong. It's easy for it to turn into a, a load of stodge. Yeah. And also if you grew up in, uh, in, in Britain in the seventies, it just makes you think this is all right, but it's not as nice as rice pudding. Yeah. <laughs> Oh my god, rice pudding! The paella you had was it a sort of yellow rice paella, or did you go for the squid ink black rice look? It was yellow. I find that the squid ink thing a bit, a little bit weird. Even though I eat meat and I eat, it's just this thing. Oh, it's oh no, 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 that's from the squid. And it's like, yes, you eat meat, you know, but it's, it's, it's odd. I don't, I don't know why. It just feels wrong like when they brought blue smarties out at first i got used to blue smarties so maybe i could eat squid ink did you did you grow up in an area where black pudding was popular and white pudding have you ever had oh well how long have you been a veggie so since i was just 20 or something okay so did you have black pudding before that no i've never had black pudding oh well it's a superfood it's just it's basically blood right yeah it's basically boiled blood i think there's something else in it as well like wheat or so there's some sort of grain in there, I guess, to bind it. Um, mm, there's it white. Sounds delicious. <laughs> yeah, <there's... laughs> I spent this summer um, when I was about, uh, I don't know, 17 or 18. I was going out with a guy whose parents taught English as a foreign language in Singapore. And so they were away all the time for months on end. So we just used to have loads of parties at his house. And he should, they shouldn't have really been left alone, the kids. But anyway, we were all in a band and we used to just... <laughs> For a whole summer, we just slept in his parents' house for the whole summer. And every day we'd have one meal at about 3 p.m. And we'd go to Quick Save and we'd buy frozen chips, bacon, sausages, beans, eggs, white bread and black pudding and white pudding. What the hell is white pudding? Well, I didn't... Is it a milky bar? (laughs) We just called it white pudding. (laughs) (laughs) That was pudding and it's white. (laughs) Um, I don't know. White pudding must have like bone in it or something. Um, Is it from an animal that's got some sort of blood disease? I mean, 
freaking out. I tried to think. <laughs> Somehow white pudding feels worse. Like there's something wrong with the animal. Whereas black pudding is like it was a healthy animal and you're eating its blood. There's something a bit kind of um, anemic and odd about white pudding. But... White pudding is broadly similar to black pudding but does not include blood. Oh. There you are. So it must contain other bits of the animal then, mustn't it? Otherwise, it would just be the binding agent. Modern recipes consist of suet or fat, oatmeal or barley, breadcrumbs, in some cases, pork or pork liver, filled into a natural or cellulose sausage casing. See, it's natural. It's fine. (laughs) Is white pudding healthy? (laughs) (laughs) It's then sliced and consumed for breakfast or evening snack. It's mostly fried before intake. It is rich in essential micronutrients like iron. So really, you could just have a chew on a couple of nails or something. Yeah. Oh, there you are. White pudding, no blood in it. It's like black pudding without the blood. It's for black pudding for people who are squeamish. Yeah, there we go. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) But we've digressed. We've severely digressed away from the delicious Spanish delicacy that is paella, which, of course, is cooked in every Spanish home according to, and everybody's mother or grandmother has the perfect recipe and nobody's is as good as anyone else. But for most English people, it is something you have on holiday in Spain and no other time, right? Yes, I suppose it is, actually. I, I don't know that many people who cook it at home who are British. You can get lots of nice sauces in jars. I know that because I've got one in the cupboard downstairs. Oh, OK. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, could go for, you could definitely go for it. I think I might, actually. Paella recipe, just do it. Yeah, because I think it's quite a good one for kids. We take our kids to Spain often, like every year we go to Spain, and they, they like getting a paella. They do like they? fishing through it and finding what's in it, you know. Betty's really fussy. I don't think she, like, the only meat she has is chicken nuggets. She won't even eat normal chicken. She won't eat potatoes. She'll only eat chips. I think paella might be too much of a leaf for her. <laughs> I think when I was a kid, my, my dream meal was jacket potato, uh, chips and mash. I think that's what I... Oh, that sounds good. Yeah, my best friend at um, at primary school and at, at, for the first year of secondary school, before I made friends with Joe, who introduced me to Dirty Dancing, was called Emma Vince. And she used to have chips, mashed potato and gravy for lunch every day. I don't think I ever saw her eat any vegetables or fruit. And she was absolutely fine. And now she's done really well for herself. So you know what? The world's gone yeah. mad with this seven-a-day. Yeah. Uh, Betty does eat rice and quinoa. And sometimes we're in the street, she goes, can I have rice and quinoa for dinner? And I think, oh, my God. But then I want to go to people. It all, the only other thing she eats are waffles and chicken nuggets. So, you know. <laughs> oh, Betty. She's going to do well for herself. She will. She'll be like Emma Vince. She's going to be all right. We all did a paella on holiday. This paella came to the table. And it had the biggest prawn you've ever seen in your life, just just lying on top of it. I mean, it really did look like it was going to get up and wander back to the <laughs> sea. And uh, I thought this was going to be alarming to the kids. But actually, they just were fascinated by this thing. And the five-year-old was saying, because, you know, they've got those, their eyes go rock hard like little bits of gravel when they've been cooked. Yeah, they're black, aren't they? And they just sit there. And, and he was really wanting to get his hands on the eyes and pull the eyes out of it. And Katie and I would say, no, leave the eyes alone. Leave the eyes alone. And then, and then I'm thinking to myself, what are we doing? What, what does it matter if he pulls the eyes out of this thing? We're about to rip its tail off and eat <laughs> its insides and discard its legs. 
and now we're being all precious about the little pellety eyes. But we found something, there's something rather like crows pecking at living sheep and pecking their eyes out. We thought, this is too much. This is too much. Have some respect for this prawn. But you can't really blind a dead prawn, can you? No, you absolutely can't. You, you can't. <laughs> the damage is already done, I think. It's very rare that you get served. I mean, it's more common with seafood, isn't it, that you get served the face. Yes, it is, isn't it? But you, it almost never happens. Yeah, you don't tend to get served the face with with meat. No. Is it because it's smaller? Often the face is enormous, though, isn't it? Yeah, that's <laughs> it. I'm sure they do in, like, medieval reconstructions of medieval feasts. They probably get a boar's yeah. head or something. Well, that's a lovely story. I've never been to Alicante, but I've spent quite a lot of time in Spain, and and I know those those little squares that you find in almost every Spanish town, and there is something really idyllic about that. Yeah, also, like is, the fact in Spain, you know, did you eat late? Did you go out late yeah, to eat, or were you yeah. like the English going out when it's still thirty five degrees? <laughs> no, it was late. <laughs> and rosé is greatly underrated, is it? It's greatly underrated. I know people look down I, on rosé. Yeah, they do. They kind of. They look down on it like people look down on Dirty Dancing, I think, actually. It's the kind of, oh, you're going to drink rosé and watch Dirty Dancing, are you? <laughs> yes, actually. Yes, yes, I am. Because I am still very much in the first three verses of Lay Still Feeds by Louis <laughs> McNeese. Yeah. I'm not. I'm, we're not watching Songs of Praise and having another pot of tea. Not yet. Let's move on. Let's move on from your idyllic Spanish holiday, which sounds really nice, and I really would quite like to do that myself. If I could go to the same restaurant every night for a week with Katie and just have paella and rosé, I would do that in a heartbeat. Yes. Why change it? Why why change it if it works? If it works. It's lovely. So we're going to go on now. We always ask our, our guests on Seven Pillars for music. Music's so important in everyone's lives, and... Uh, and certainly, I know for Izzy, music's a big part of your life. Yeah. Um, tell us about your your. Is it we ask for a favorite artist or a track or and you've chosen an album, Izzy? I've chosen an album um, called Mingus by Joni Mitchell, sort of and Charlie Mingus, really, sort of because he he it was when he basically he wrote kind of the music before he passed away, and then they were working on it together, and then she completed it after he died um and I was listening to it again the other day I used to listen to it a lot there's a track that I absolutely love on it it's my favorite track on it called the dry, the dry cleaner from Des Moines um which is about a dry cleaner from Des Moines who goes and plays the arcade machines and wins loads of money and it's I think it's absolutely beautiful and it's really kind of energizing and then other tracks on it I have to be in the mood and it has to be the evening it's like I can't really listen to them in the day it's like they're sort of too rich to be listened to in the day but I've listened to this album so much that I can pitch the the starting note of the next song once a song's ended if you know what I mean I can sort of go which I can can do with a lot of albums actually I can do it with Madonna's The Immaculate Collection as well I can once one song ends, I can sing the note of the next song. Now, for those of it, for, the, for people who don't know Mingus, um, uh, Joni Mitchell's collaboration with with Charles Mingus, who was a a uh, well, they're always called legendary, aren't they? They are always uh, jazz musicians. They're always called the legendary, um, and he was a uh, bass player. And he they collaborated. Joni Mitchell was a very famous um, 
well, she's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Her album yeah. Blue is one of the all-time greats. Um, Canadian singer-songwriter from the 60s and 70s. I'm sure most of our listeners will be familiar with her, but perhaps not with this particular collaboration. And they collaborated in 1979 on this album. It's relatively short. It's 37 minutes. Uh, it's got little little bits between tracks where you hear them in this in the studio talking. And then she called the album Mingus because before it was released, he he sadly died in his 50s. And so um, it was kind of posthumously released. But he's a fascinating character to read about. On his Wikipedia page, you know, most Wikipedia pages will have a biography, a personal life, a discography, and that sort of thing. And his Wikipedia page has a a personality and temper section. Does it? Yeah, and it tells a story. He he was a long-time collaborator with a jazz musician, Jimmy Nepper, but he punched him in the mouth uh, in one particular violent rage, chipped a tooth, and uh, Nepper then struggled uh, to play the trombone, which was his job. Uh, oh, my God. <laughs> uh, another time he got in a rage on stage with a, with a pianist and tried to uh, shut the piano lid on his fingers. He he was a, apparently a very large man and he was prone to depression and then he would have brief periods of extreme creative activity, it says here. It sounds like uh, possibly something a little bit bipolarish about him. Yeah. Um, but he, for all of these uh, stories about his uh, down moments, he was by all accounts the most wonderful musician and um and he collaborated with Joni on this album. And this this is an album, I played it for the kids at breakfast and they were looking at me going, what is this? Because some of it is really, there's you'll hear a little bit of a sound somewhere and then she'll make a noise and then there'll be a bit more and you'll think, oh, wow, they've gone down a jazz rabbit hole. But then every now and then, as you say with that song about the dry cleaner, there's something about her voice, her lyrics, where it picks up and it's instantly memorable. Yeah, I think... What I love is the the irregularity of it. Like it's quite jagged in places, isn't it? It's yes, it is. But I I can see why your kids have that reaction. I can't imagine what mine would do if I put it on because I think we're not really used to hearing music like that. In like you know, they mostly listen to Katy Perry, which they're obsessed with. Raw. It's like the li- literal opposite of that, isn't it? Um, it really is. I mean, no, we're big. We're big Taylor Swift fans in our house, but there's 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 a kind of a a smooth perfection to all of Taylor Swift's hugely impressive songwriting output yeah. over a number of years. Yeah. But there's something willfully difficult and obtuse about this record that that makes this is what gets you in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I suppose. They, you see their talent in glimpses and flashes when yeah. they decide to display it, yeah. but some of it's done for them, not for you. Almost. Yeah, that's true. I think there's an there's a slight arrogance about this album that I sort of respect, um, that they're withholding their talent at times when it would have been easier to just play it, but they, they don't. I sort of love that. Is this, a t- is this an album that you had when you were a, a student? Yes. And I think my uncle, my mum's brother... He's a really big fan of music and he loves Tom Waits. He loves Frank Zappa. He loves um, the Travelling Wilburys. He loves Amy Winehouse. And he sent a lot of cassette tapes to my mum. And I think that's how I first heard Joni Mitchell. Not necessarily this album, but 
I think that's how I first heard Joni Mitchell from Uncle Dick. Um, and I really love her voice. I think there's something quite soulful and sad about her voice, about the tone of her voice. And that's why I have to be in the right mood to listen to it. I listened to Mingus a bit yesterday when I was walking back from meeting my friend and it seemed really odd to listen to it in daylight when I was about to go into a bakery and buy a donut and it like it didn't seem to fit that it it sort of needs to be played on a record player you know sitting down in an armchair and yeah I think that's definitely right this is not a this is not an album to listen to when you're doing your couch to 5k <laughs> no which actually I am doing and I'm I've had to go back to week two because I got sciatica and then got some proper trainers um but I was thinking yesterday when I was walking back and buying the donuts that's the opening line for a poem please write that down <laughs> okay <laughs> Yeah, anyone can write poetry. It's <laughs> a poem. I had to go back to week two because I got sciatica and I had to get some good trainers. <laughs> what other albums were you listening to? What were you listening to at college apart from Joni Mitchell? So I didn't listen to that many albums. I listened to an album by Rachmaninoff that I don't know. Do they have albums in the same way that um, they don't have B sides necessarily, do they? But I don't think they put an they did an album and a tour. <laughs> Oh, my manager said I've got a tour again. But that's not... I wasn't expecting that. Jenny Mitchell and Ratmaninoff. Ratmaninoff, that, not... again, I think came from Uncle Dick. Maybe your mum. Mum's always been really into classical music. I love um, Uncle Dick. I wish Jenny Mitchell would write a song called Uncle oh, Dick. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. He lives on the Isle of Wight. Yeah, he's great. <laughs> that doesn't rhyme. He's got to move him. Yeah, he's got to move. <laughs> to Warbleswick, maybe, near um, Ipswich. <laughs> Uncle Dick from Warbleswick, near Ipswich. He woke up feeling suicidal. It would go something like that. Yeah, there would have to be a kind of, yeah, there'd have to be texture to it. It wouldn't just be that he went for a walk and, yeah. People often ask me, what do you remember from QI? Do you remember any fascinating facts? And I, and I say, no, I don't. But I do remember one thing, which was we had on a replica, but just a cardboard cutout, actually, of one of Rachmaninoff's hands. And he had the most enormous hands. I'm going to double the size of my hands, really? which is sort of a normal adult male hands. Giant hands. And his um, music, his piano compositions, are very difficult to play if you don't have very large hands. This yeah. was addressed on QI by Sandy Toxvig as an example of sexism in music because women couldn't play this, this stuff because their hands right. weren't big enough. Yes. So I thought it was a little bit of a stretch, a bit unfair to wrap my <laughs> But yes, I don't know if that's uh, perhaps that's what he and Joni Mitchell have in common. Perhaps she has enormous hands. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it's a little known fact about her that she's actually got enormous hands. Well, it's an amazing choice, is it? It's not what I. I mean, Joni Mitchell, I could see you come in with. I know you're a, you're a bit of a guitarist and you've got a bit of a folky vibe about you, and I could see you like a Joni Mitchell. But this is such a. I won't say obscure, but unusual and really a kind of one-off. It's sort of obtuse, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think it's it's the dry cleaner from Des Moines that makes this album so amazing for me. I think it's such an incredible track. It is a great track. Listener, um, when you finished here, go straight to it and locate that. So that's uh, Mingus, Joni Mitchell's uh, collaboration with uh, Charlie Mingus, who passed away and so that's why it was called Mingus. We'll leave that there. We'll move on now to your favourite place. We ask our guests to come up with somewhere that means something to them, something important and fundamental. I've chosen Edinburgh um, for a few reasons really. My dad grew up in Edinburgh so 
I feel like I've got this personal connection to it, I suppose. Um, I'm always really quick to say it to anyone who thinks I'm English there. I'm like, actually, I'm half Scottish. My dad, my dad grew up here. Um, and the other reason is that I love, I have a sort of incredibly intense relationship with Edinburgh Festival and as I'm sure you do. And I think, you know, once you've done a show up there, you view the city in a different way and you've, you know all the sort of charms and wonders of it and all the and all the dreadful elements of the festival like if your show isn't selling that well or doing that well review wise and you just don't want to do your show anymore but you've got to carry on doing it and then the years that you have better years and you think oh this is the this is the best place and I've had so many nights out in Edinburgh I've been going up to the festival since I was about um probably six or seven because of dad and my great auntie lives lives there still and you know had lived there for her whole life and I just I think it's an incredible place really yes I totally agree I couldn't agree more it's the most wonderful city in the festival and the fringe it's something that I, I, I feel emotional thinking about I know so many do. years so many times and you sort of remember so many nights out don't you and in a in a way it's like that <clears throat> thing of lost youth what happens at the beginning of your career and with your first Edinburgh show and with me for the first sort of few years that I did Edinburgh is that you've got no one knows knew who I was at all I don't know if if if, if you have the same like you it's le- much less pressure because I hadn't done any telly at all um or I'd done tiny tiny acting parts and things no one would remember hardly any radio um and I just wrote this show that was the best show I could have written at the time. And I felt like I'd pushed myself as much as I could. I was really proud of it. And it went quite well and it sold out a little room at the Pleasance, but still, you know, um, it felt really good. And It's a lovely feeling when you see your name on the blackboard and it's got sold out written next to it. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. I know. And, you know, I was losing a lot of money, like most people performers do in Edinburgh, don't we? Um, but I, I just had such a great year and... I had no one coming with any expectations whatsoever. I don't know how the hell Avalon sold tickets to people because I was a complete unknown. But That's because they gave them away, is it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Why didn't I make any money? Because they paid with the house every night, apart from your family, your great auntie <laughs> and your mum and dad. <laughs> but do you also have great memories of, of sharing flats and that sort of oh, thing? Yeah, I, I do yeah. remember one year I shared a flat with Armstrong and Miller who I didn't know well, and we really, all I remember is just laughing our heads off. We laughed so much. And as you say, coming in at all hours of the day and night, never eating properly. And one of the nice things about working comedy or being a comedian is, regardless of your own show and your own work and what you're up to, you do somehow get to hear about and know about some really brilliant comedy early before, you know, anybody else, as it were. And you can find shows that are, later on become huge and have this real privileged moment where you're in a tiny room. I remember going to see uh, Rich Hall when he was doing Otis Lee Crenshaw in about 1998. He was doing it at half past 11 at night in the Gilded Balloon Studio, which was one of my favourite rooms in Edinburgh, which sadly got burned down. And I went about four nights in a row and it was so funny. It was a little room. People were sitting in the back um, smoking joints or radical crazy Um, but it's just such happy memory and laughing so much at everything that he said yeah it's you do you feel like you're kind of in you're in such a bubble aren't you you're 
Um, I remember going to see Will Hodgson's show the year that he won the Perrier and just feeling like so excited. He's so like, fantastic, isn't he, yeah, Will Hodgson? I yeah, love him. Brilliant. Like crammed into this room at the Holyrood Tavern and the smaller the room, you more the more you feel your party to a kind of event, don't you? Um, yeah, absolutely. And there were times, I used to always live with Josie Long and Danielle Ward that for years we lived together and then we sort of got various boyfriends and stuff and it, it changed. But um, there were loads of things like we lived, we had a flat on Hunter Square and Danielle slept in the front room and there were always buskers starting at like 10 in the morning, which actually isn't that early, but in Edinburgh it's, it's equivalent of about 4am, isn't it? And um, I slept in a room with no windows or ventilation whatsoever then got really ill after like one week and had to sleep in Josie's bed with her. And then we flooded the whole kitchen somehow and Danielle had to wash all our underwear in the bath and then some men came around who were comics and she showed them all our pants and stuff. Like when I think about all the things that, um, God, yeah, that, that we did in sneaking boys back we stayed in the top of this house once that we were like lodges, I suppose. We had the whole of the top floor with our own bathroom and little kitchen and we weren't supposed to bring anyone back. And of course we did. And it was like we were like 16 again, you know, not that many people get to be in their 20s and 30s and feel like they're basically at school. I think that is how you feel in Edinburgh. But I think it is hard when you're show. Have you had years where your show, you're not that happy with your show in 2008? my show wasn't very good I didn't really have enough and I compared in inverted commas it as myself and then turned around on the spot and would be like hi I'm Adele Winehouse I'm Amy Winehouse's cousin and then do a song as her then turn and it would just wasn't brilliant you know actually as you start to do that I felt myself looking for the exit (laughs) that's it (laughs) I always tried to sit near the exit I hate those venues where the exit is kind of by the stage, so you, so you have can't to. leave without the performance. <laughs> but also now, you, but once you're recognisable, people are watching you anyway, I imagine, to see what your reaction is. You certainly can't exit, you know. I will always wear a full head mask, <laughs> but no, you can't. But also, you know, on the principle of how much of a cake do you need to eat before you know the cake is bad, usually you know within three minutes that this show is going to be crap. Oh my god, three seconds. <laughs> Sometimes just by the way the lights go down, you can tell. Absolutely. By the, what the rest of the audience look like. You don't even <laughs> wait for the lights to go down. Did you ever see Kiki and Herb? No, but I know who I know who they are, but I know I didn't. See, I never would have seen or heard of Kiki and Herb if it wasn't for the Edinburgh Friends. Yes. And I and I recommend Kiki and Herb to and you can get albums and stuff online. Are they like a cabaret double act type thing? Yeah, they're like a kind of spoof. It's very hard to describe. But uh, Kiki is this singer who's supposedly old and has been around for decades and is embittered. Um, I don't know the name of the person who does Kiki and Herb is the pianist. Yeah. And the banter between them and the songs, and it's just beautifully funny. And I, I went to see them over and over again one year. It's, I, I just, there's just something marvellous about the city. It's the fact that you can walk everywhere, the fact that it's so beautiful. Yeah. You know, there are people all around. There's always, and also, it's an, as it really is an absolute alcoholics Disneyland because there really is always, I do remember seeing people queuing up to get into a pub at 6 a.m. Yeah. Uh, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
I know. It's that's one of the best things about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can see why that's your favourite place, and and really, it, I I share many of the same feelings, and I know that's. For comedy especially, it's such an important place. It's an important place professionally because if you have a good, strong Edinburgh Festival, you're gonna, it might lead to all kinds of other opportunities. But it's an important place for memories and friendships and it's a, it's a real emotional pause. I do remember being up the first time I went, I was a student, I was 20, we did a student show. Yeah. And I went with my friend to see Rory Bremner because we both thought we wanted to do impressions. And we realised that once we'd seen him, that it was pointless because it was on another level. And it was hysterically brilliantly funny. And we went back to the flat, the two-bedroom flat that seven of us were staying in. And one of the girls in our group came in and said, oh, my God, I've just seen the greatest thing ever. You won't believe it. It's unbelievable. You've got to go and see the Joan Collins fan club. And it's my, to my great regret that I never managed to see Julian Clary doing the Joan Collins fan club. But she'd seen him in a tiny room in Edinburgh in 1986. And th- those things stay with you, I think. They oh, stay yeah. With you for life. Yeah, they really do. And for non-comics, they do. I think a lot of the reason why civilians like going up is you know people who I know who really love Edinburgh who aren't performers um who who don't have no desire to be they love discovering you know going to see those tiny shows with you know in those little venues where you're kind of all packed in and or maybe there's only you in the audience and you think it's brilliant and then 10 years later they're on telly and you can go I saw them and I you know people love that I think I do love that. I do remember my sister-in-law coming up to Edinburgh and saying, what should we see? And being able to curate a festival for her. I said, go to to this, 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 this and this. Yeah. You've only got three days. Don't go to that. Don't go to that. Don't go to that. Yeah. And at the end of it, she said, that was amazing. I said, yeah. I felt like as a personal tour guide, I'd done done well. Yes. Now we go. Edinburgh is wonderful, but it's, uh, and there are all the many gigs and the wonderful things of every possible from opera to buskers and everything in between you can't imagine it it contains everything yeah it does and the city's beautiful the city itself is beautiful and when the festival isn't there it's absolutely brilliant as well but because of my personal connection to the festival and probably yours as well i feel that when i think of edinburgh i think of edinburgh with added festival yeah i know what you mean i do feel and if you have never visited the edinburgh fringe do so. Yes. Um, but this, the other, the, we're going to go now to your event because, in a way, it's a connection because your favourite event is a gig, right? My favourite event is a gig and it's a band called Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine, which I'd be interested to know if you remember you're a little bit older than me and I felt like I was quite young when I discovered them because I went to my first gig of theirs. I think I was probably 13. So that was in... 91. I do remember Carter and Support Sex Machine, yeah. um, also known as Carter or Carter USM. For, for, for indie kids who were too cool to say Unstoppable Sex Machine yes. and didn't like <laughs> But Carter was the guitarist, right? Is that right? Um, actually, no. So Jim Jim Bob is the is was the singer, and he um he he's his name is actually James Morris Jim Morrison but I don't think he likes the doors weirdly I know him now but I'll come on to that um okay. uh, it's really odd uh, but um so yeah no there were only two of them at the beginning so there was Jim Bob and there was Fruit Bat and um Jim Bob basically sat he if anyone remembers he had like a shaved head with one tendril of hair coming straight down 
the front are really long, which a lot of boys had in in the nineties, actually, didn't they? Um, He's quite a good looking lad too, wasn't he? Yeah, Did very skinny and. Yeah, a bit in the way that I sort of fancied, like, you know, when you went to see bands, I fancied, like, Jesus Jones, I fancied EMF, I fancied Mr. C, um, who sang <laughs> Ebenezer Good. Uh, I think it was more that I was 13 and they were like... <laughs> they were on stage. They were on stage. They were doing what I essentially wanted to do, um, but I couldn't do. So I was like, oh, yeah, you know, maybe if I married them, I'd get to do that. I think, actually, I was only really concerned with my career, even at... <laughs> Even at that age. Here, I've pulled up their Wikipedia page. Jim Jim Bob Morrison and Les Fruitbat Carter. Those these are the two lads. Yeah, and they had they did have um sort of other members as time went on. They both played guitar in it as well. Um they did have other members, but it was never they got a drummer called Wes. Um I went to see them at Sheffield Leadmill when when Les was part of the lineup. But when I think of them, I only really think of just Jim Bob and Fruitbat, to be honest. Now, they're well-known. I mean, they never really had huge mainstream success, did they? They weren't at Top of the Pops regular. They had several albums. But they were well-known for, would you say, for the the wit and humour of their lyrics as much as anything else? Yeah, like, they're sort of a bit punky, aren't they? But they're kind of, co- in a sense, comic lyrics and very poetic lyrics, actually. I think that the lyrics um, tell, tell a lot of stories in, in a sort of, more of a folk style but the music was quite punky and some of the lyrics are very poetic and quite sad some of them are are, are kind of comic more more comic lyrics they had a song called sheriff fat man which people might remember because it was played it was probably one of their, their most um famous songs wasn't it i mean when i say when i talk about their some of the humor in their lyrics i'll give you a couple of their album titles uh one is you fat bastard and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and uh, another one is starry eyed and bollock naked. I mean, they like they they like to they like a laugh, don't they? They do like a laugh, and they also like to put what's it called when? Oh man, there's a word for this, isn't it? When it's not an oxymoron, but there are there are two clashing things that sort of complement each other. Um, mm-hmm. I suppose it's the equivalent of having like lemon with rice pudding or something like two things that you didn't don't think would go together where one's really acidic and one's really um and there is a literary term for it but i don't know what it is but yeah they it's sort of sometimes it's a bit shocking isn't it you go oh right okay um sometimes it, it yeah it kind of they they complement each other in a really odd way there some of their titles and what i i used to really like going to see them live because i we had derby assembly rooms reasonably near Matlock and it had a lot of gigs on and I saw a lot of bands there um and Carter was the first band I saw live that weren't that were kind of a grown-up band I'd seen Take That in Matlock Bath Illuminations amazingly when I was about 11 when they were starting out or perhaps 12 and I'd thrown a pound coin at Howard Donald's head to say thank you because in my head they were sort of like buskers I thought they'd done really well with a small crowd that sung their hearts out and um, actually hit him on the head so that was my only other and then there was a guy there was a Christian band that came to our school and played called Hope and they had um, posters everywhere saying Hope with a picture of them and someone went around with a marker pen writing the word no in front of Hope on every single one so so meticulously you could put less yeah exactly i suppose it would have been more letters so if they're worried about getting caught then maybe do half the amount but yes (laughs) 
think hopeless would have would have been a nicer kind of um, no hopes oh, no, no 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 hopes good not bad is it whoever that was um but they, they only hope or no hope and take that were the only bands really that i'd seen live and then carter felt like oh my god so i was probably only 13 when i went and a girl in the year above me called sam donnell who hadn't really talked to me before came up to me and said i've got a spare ticket for carter do you want to come my, my mum or my dad's going to drive us and I was like, yeah, because I just said yes to everything, everything. And um, I loved it. I was in the mosh pit. I had my Doc Martens on. Um, I had Doc Martens that a guy had sheared the soles of with a pair of shears, garden shears, um, when uh, we were all hammered. They just I was quite a naughty child, I suppose. I was only 13 and I already had these Doc Martens that had completely uneven soles because this guy had sheared like chunks out of the soles. So as I walked, it really was like they say air walk, don't they, Doc Martins? Like you're supposed to be walking. It really was like I was walking on air because I was because chunks of the soul was missing. Um, <laughs> and I had EMF on one on one Doc Martin in Tipex and simply red on the other one, which really didn't go with. <laughs> Outstanding use of Tipex. Yeah. Everyone used to go, EMF simply red, simply red. It sort of graduated into the cool gang. I still had simply red. And Tippett's quite it's quite hard to get off. Anyway, I was wearing yeah. those docks. Um, luckily no one at the Carter gig saw simply red on on the docks. And I remember getting kicked in the head in the mosh pit with people, um, crowd surfing. I didn't care. Um, I smoked then and I took 60 fags with me. I don't know what I expected. I don't know what I expected to happen. I expected a gig to go on for a week. <laughs> well, by Thursday, I'm going to need another packet. Yeah. <laughs> Did you have that thing where you come out and your ears are oh, ringing because of yeah. the absolute shattering volume of it? Yeah, you're so hot, aren't you? You're, you've sweated through your top and... We got back in the car and one of our parents drove us home and they put on this kind of quite ambient chill out music that I'll always remember because it was so at odds with what we just listened to. And it's really weird to listen to other music when you've just been at a gig. Um, and then I went to see them quite a few times over the years, over the next sort of probably eight or nine years, maybe. And um, I got backstage at one time, there was a big rivalry between Carter fans and Morrissey fans. I don't know why at, at that time, um, but there was used to be fights and things. I think one of them must have said something about the other one or something. But we used to go on these coach trips where you'd meet at Derby coach station. You'd get on your coach to the Carter gig or to the Morrissey gig or Jesus Jones gig or whatever. And um, I remember that there was this Morrissey coach going as well. So it was a lot of high tension with the Morrissey fans. And I got on and this girl said, do you like Carter? And I said, yeah. She said, prove it. Um, what are their names? And I said, Jim, Bob and Fruitbat. And she said, all right, I'll get you backstage then. I didn't believe her. <laughs> and um, she did. So I met her afterwards. I think I had 40 fags that time because I'd realised I didn't need to take 60. <laughs> and, um, we went backstage and I met them and I didn't, I couldn't speak. I actually could not speak a single word. Wow. And it was awful because they asked me questions and I just smoked smoked my 39th fag and <laughs> didn't say anything. <laughs> and then I met him. I know him now. I know Jim Bob because he lives in Crystal Palace where I live. And I did a gig with him for Robin Ince quite a few years ago now. And my friend Gavin Osborne was there too. And he 
he knew that I was such a big Carter fan. He said, oh my God, you're going to meet Jim Bob. You're not going to be able to talk to him. It's going to be like last time when you were in the dressing room. I was like, shut up. So then when I met Jim Bob, I was really, really passive aggressive with him. For no, He was like, oh, hi, I'm Jim. And I was like, hi, I'm Izzy. And I was like, then I went, do you want a coffee? And he went, um, no, thanks. And I went, well, I'm going anyway. And then I got him a coffee that he didn't want. And I was like, it's fine. I was going anyway. And he was just like, what the fuck is going on? It was just because I didn't. I... <laughs> God. Well, well handled. Yeah. Yeah. I can remember years ago, many years ago, like 92, I was on tour with Sean Hughes, um, uh, RIP Sean, um, and he was, I was supporting him. And we did the Manchester Apollo. It's a huge venue, really massive venue. Um, and uh, we're in the dressing room and then somebody says, oh, there's a girl here. She wants to come up to the dressing room. And uh, we, me and Sean and our tour manager were there thinking, oh, God, okay. So and Sean put on his little round blue sunglasses that made him look a bit like John Lennon and prepared to greet this girl. And this girl came in and said, oh, my God, is this the dressing room that Morris is going to use? And it was all... <laughs> she wanted to get in the dressing room because Morrissey was playing in the same venue the following week. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, oh. And the look on poor Sean's face. He'd put his shades on, especially. Put his shades on. He was ready to do some, I don't know what. He was obviously feeling slightly afraid. And I imagine that Jim Bob felt felt slightly afraid of you. I bet he did. (laughs) I got him a flat white he'd never asked for. (laughs) (laughs) Again, write that down because that's the first line of a poem. I got him a flat white he'd never asked for. Yeah, actually, you're right. This is is the beginning of a new show for me, Alan. It's the beginning of a new show. I'm a poet. I never knew it. You're a poet. You can have a whole new Edinburgh. I go to Edinburgh now with the with the kids, and we get up. If anyone could come up with a really good kids show that they were prepared to do at eight a.m., they would clean up. Yeah, you're right. Because I did a kids show one year called Frog in Love, uh, where I played a frog, a rat, and a duck, and they had different accents. And um, <laughs> it's very stressful. Real life. Yeah. So such an observation of the animal kingdom. Yeah. Um, but they were, that show was, at 11, I think it was 11.10. And that was so early for Edinburgh because we lived in Leith and we had to fly her beforehand. So we had to really be on the Royal Mile by sort of half nine. And I mean, to, for anyone to do a kids show at eight, you'd basically, you'd stay up all night, wouldn't you? Then you'd do the kids show at eight, then you'd go to bed. But there are people there with kids who are desperate for a show at eight. I know, I know. By by 11, the kids are already killing each other. Well, also, they're ready for their nap. We went to see a kid show at about 9am or maybe 10, and we were queuing up to get in, and the cast, who were all in their 20s, arrived about three minutes before the gig, and they clearly had gone straight through. (laughs) (laughs) So they should... Well, Izzy, wonderful memories of Carter the Unstoppable Sex Machine. That really is a name from my past. I think they were recording and gigging around the time when I was gigging up and down the country as a stand-up comedian. So I never saw them because I was always gigging. But well, you probably shared dressing rooms. Probably stood on the same sticky floors. If I'd known you then, I would have asked to come into the dressing room and say, 
is this the dressing room Carter are going to be in in a week? I don't even know what a flat white is yet because it's 1993, but... Yeah. There's no such thing as anything apart from coffee. Oh, yeah, exactly. Let's finish this. Um, let's finish this event, um, or this podcast rather. It is an event. No, it, this is an event. It's, it's, it's a cultural event. event. <laughs> your final uh, pillar of your seven is uh, is a memory. What have you chosen? I've chosen skiing. I don't know why people are surprised when they learn that I love skiing I used to say I ski I actually haven't been since Betty was a baby we, we took her when she was three months old against the advice of all sane people and um, <laughs> it was quite stressful um but I used to go skiing every year I first went when I was about 11 or 12 to Bulgaria with my family my mum made us ski suits out of duvets, which she sprayed with some sort of waterproof spray because she <laughs> thought we ne- we might never go again. Even though she and dad had met on a skiing holiday, she my mum's quite, she's like, let's think of the worst possible scenario, then we won't be disappointed. So she thought, well, let's not invest in salopettes because we'll probably never use them again. I know I'll make ski suits out of these 60s duvets. So it was just, I mean, the photos of us, we're in these like brown and yellow flowery, It'd probably be quite cool now, but... It's it's not quite like Julie Andrews in Sound of Music. Yes. Like pulling down the curtains and making dresses. Well, was she a wizard with a sewing machine? Yeah, she was. She was. Mm -hmm. But I think, actually, that generation are better at sewing. Like, I can just about mend a button and that's it. But, yeah, she was. She is good. No, she used to make us a lot of clothes, actually. So, for her, it was no skin off her nose. But to me, I was like, oh, my God, Mum, this is so embarrassing. But I did. I do remember really loving it. And then I didn't go again till I was about probably 19 in Slovenia with my friend Veronica um, in Maribor. And then that, I really loved it then. I have to say, I'm not an excellent skier, but I I believe that I can do it. And actually, that counts for quite a lot. It doesn't count for everything. Like, you do need some technique. And I, I've had loads of lessons, but I think I've hit my... I don't think I'm going to get any better than this. And I'm not great. So I shouldn't be really doing... I shouldn't be doing black runs and I probably shouldn't be doing that many red runs. For anyone who doesn't know, ski ski slopes are ordered in, t- in um, order of difficulty and they're given um, colours and black is the hardest and red is the second hardest and blue and greens are always quite nice and easy. Well, my experience of skiing, and I enjoy skiing too, and I'm also hopeless at it, but I, the jump from a blue run to a red run is alarming. I feel like there's a big gulf between those two. Like that, that's the biggest. Yeah, I agree. Do you like it? Do you do you go a lot? I find that boys or men they think there's something. If, if you're not on something that's terrifying and dangerous, yeah. What's the point? Yes. You know. But I always think I, I used to love riding motorbikes, and I used to think there are two types of motorcyclists. There are ones who've been hit by a car and ones who haven't. And yeah. and how you ride accordingly is, yeah. is when you've had that. And I felt like that with skiing. You can have the time of your life without risking it. You know, you can really, yeah. there's yeah. something about the snow, the mountains. Also, stopping somewhere on a mountainside and in some wooden hut and eating delicious food and drinking glue vine or whatever it is, and then falling down the hill to the bottom again and getting on a ski, it's just bliss, isn't it? Oh, yeah. My God, it's the best. You know, I love everything about skiing. I love I, I agree that you don't. I used to be like a motorbike, a motorcyclist. Like 
in the old days, I used to be like, I want to do this. I want to do that. I want to go off piece. I want it. And I did some really stupid stuff, actually. And I was really lucky not to get hurt. And then as I've got older, I've gone, I just really want to go down that green run again. It's like the paella. It's like I'd go down the same run every day because the light's different or the snow's different. And it shouldn't just be about traversing as much of it as possible. It should be about stopping and enjoying it. And perhaps that's part of getting older. But but I used to do, my God, I've done. We One night we got so drunk, me and my friend Bobby from Liverpool and his cousin, Joel, who a little bit older than me, we ended up, and I don't know how it happened, stealing a table from a restaurant and we dragged it up to the top of um, the main run. It was in, um, God, I can't remember which resort it was in. It was quite a posh one. Um, it was We were out of place there, put it that way. Morzine, Morzine. Um, we were very out of place. Weren't there a lot of other people at the top of the mountain no. with tables? Or were you very much just... No, well, weirdly enough, it was just us. Uh, it was about 2am. Uh, I expected and hoped to see other people, but it was just us. Um, and then we turned it over so that the tabletop was on the snow and then the legs were sticking up in the air and then we just got on it. And we didn't know what would happen. And stupidly, I thought that it might not go down. But I think it's a red run going into Morsing, so it's quite steep and it goes right right down into the town. And we went at probably 60 or 70 miles an hour. like it were, And it was twisting round as it was going round. Joel and Bobby somehow rolled off because they were size. I was in the middle, so I just gripped the legs and we I crashed into this crash barrier at the bottom. And because I was so pissed... My body was just relaxed and so I didn't hurt myself. But I think that was quite a lucky escape because it was stuff like that. I just Then they went back and went down in Joel's suitcase, but I went to bed. They always wanted to push it a step further, but um, <laughs> that's a, they're a really bad influence. So I, I just, um, I can't really blame them though. But I like... I, I used to do loads of stuff like that, and I and their their borders. I used to always be the only skier, and not as good as them as well. Um, and I just used to think I'm just going to go where they go. I thought if I go there, I'll have to go down, and that is the truth. But getting down, I was sometimes on my front or on my back for the whole of the run, so I did get down it, but not upright. <laughs> Oh, it is so much fun, isn't it? Oh, I remember the first yeah. time I went was a school trip, but subsequently I've taken my kids along and that's one of the things we're desperate to do again when we're not forced to quarantine, going out to the end of the road and back. Yeah, I know. It's it's hard to explain. I, I feel like if you fall in love with the whole culture of it as well, like how invigorating it is and how hungry you are in the evenings and how much you drink if you do drink and if you don't then that's also fine what I mean is your body is like so hungry for sustenance because you've had exercise all day and then like everything feels so good you're buzzing it's it's I think it's amazing but taking Betty when she was three months old was my god it was it was full on like it was it was stressful and there was a crash there and my mate um, who's a little bit pushy, my best mate was like, it'll be fine. You just put the babies in the crash all day and you ski, it'll, it's great. And I, I was like, okay. And then she was only little and she was my first baby. And I was like, I can't leave her in a crash. I don't I don't know anyone here. And it was, yeah, it was um, it was a bit tricky, uh, I'd say. Sounds like, sounds like, yeah, you can't, a three-month-old baby, but you can't really put it down. No, it was, it was. It, it turns out. It, yeah, it's weird, isn't it? She was like, it'll just, you'll just put it in a sling and go, it'll be great. Um, 
No, it won't. <laughs> no, I did put her in a kind of sling and put shades on and she fell asleep. And there's photos of me having this meal at the restaurant and my body is so tense because I was a mum of a three-month-old, you know, breastfeeding, trying to sort of remember, have I drunk any water today? I can't even remember if I've eaten anything. And sort of on a ski slope going, what? Not with her in the sling, of course, but, you know, in the resort kind of going, what am I doing? And that and that was the first time Ellis had ever skied when we went with Betty when she was a baby. And um, we were in a big group as usual. And he firstly took the wrong boots and skis in the morning so someone else in the group couldn't ski at all for the whole day. And then the next day he was supposed to be doing a learner's lesson and he somehow started in the right group, but, and he's always late. He was late, but found his group. Then within about 20 minutes had joined another group of 80 year olds. So he had to finish the lesson with all these really old people. (laughs) (laughs) I can't picture a group of 80 year olds. Well, also, Skiing. why are you learning at 80? Imagine a paramedic would have to be on, on at prison at all times. But yeah, you see really old um, kind of French or perhaps Italian-looking skiers, you know, who look like they've been doing it for their whole lives. But you don't tend to see really old people learning to ski. It's like, why have no, you waited till true. now? Yeah, you do need a paramedic. <laughs> oh, God. But there is sometimes, I know, it's great fun being with groups and friends and so on, but sometimes also, if you just have some time by yourself and you find some little run that you like that perhaps is a bit underpopulated compared to other bits. Yeah. And you're just there by yourself with the mountain and it's just something so peaceful about it. I know. I know. And those moments are really important, I think, where it's not just about kind of what you've accomplished and what runs you've been down. It's it's just it's just there, it's just you and you don't think about anything else. No. It's peaceful. Yeah. It's a wonderful thing. It's a great skiing's marvelous. Yeah. Another excellent choice, Izzy. We've come to the end of your uh, seven pillars. It's a almost it's a little tone of sadness because there's a there's a lifetime of um near hedonism and uh and now addressing the next part of your life with children and hoping to return to some of those and I want to reassure you that you will ski again. You will have wonderful fringe festivals again. You'll have multiple paellas. <laughs> And you. and you will one day watch Dirty Dancing with Betty and laugh your heads off. Thank you. And uh, so, so much of your of your so many of your seven pillars are to do with almost uh, lost youth. But you'll be you'll be there again. Your mischief and your naughtiness will become a delight for your children when they're out of. Uh, uh, toddler years yeah uh, thank you so much for sharing them with us is it's been a real pleasure you're welcome well let's do it again in 10 years then i'll have new seven pillars new pillars that aren't that are about like hey i did all these crazy things only last week <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks izzy i'll see you soon i hope mm-hmm.